Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, we're going to get started. Um, I think there are some seats along the side here if anybody wants to move closer, closer to our eminent speaker. So I'm Sarah Wald. I'm co-teaching the Gender and Policy Seminar with Hannah Riley Bowles this semester. And as those of you who've been to the WAP Thursday seminars know, um, these seminars are uh, following a theme this semester, which is equity in the workplace. And we've heard from social scientists, and we've heard from some comparative experts, and we've heard from lawyers. And it's raised a number of issues about how to make the workplace more equitable. And we are so happy to have Jenny, Jane Mansbridge, here today as kind of the culmination of this discussion because she is an expert on many things, but including um, social change. And the question, which hasn't always been addressed directly when we've talked about these subjects in other times during the semester, is how do we change this situation? We've described the situation, we've identified problems, we've identified some possible interventions, but how do we actually move things forward and get some progress? And Jenny's going to be talking about that today. Um, as we know, it, these um, seminars are podcasts, so we welcome WAP's podcast community, which has downloaded these seminars over 48,000 times, and we ask that you please uh, silence your cell phones, and when we have the question and answer period, that the questions be on topic. And I'm going to turn it over to Jane Stanford, uh, Jane Nansbridge. Jenny? Jane, would you prefer? I only know you as my Jenny. Name, my name is Jane, and my nickname is Jenny, and I uh, uh, would like you all to feel free to call me Jenny. Okay. <laughs> so Jenny is the Charles F. Adams Professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. She's the author of Beyond Adversary Democracy and Why We Lost the ERA. She is the editor, co-editor of Beyond Self-Interest, Feminism, Oppositional Consciousness, Deliberative Systems, and Political Negotiation. She was president of the American Political Science Association in 2012 and 2013. And she received the site. Am I saying it? Shooter. Shooter. Don't shoot. Don't shoot the political science. The Shooter Prize in 2018. And she's really an amazing um, academic, expert, intellectual, and role model for many, many women in the, during the history of the Kennedy School, both within the Kennedy School and outside. I don't know if she's gonna talk at all today, she is also a political activist herself. And um, so we are going to hear now about the ERA, the strategies and the failures, and what that means for social change and organizing. Thank uh, thanks for coming out today. Um, I'm going to go straight to it. So um, the theme will be using the ERA as an example, talking about movement, social movements as a force for social change. And what I want to do is first give you a little bit of background on the ERA, and then talk about some of the strategic strengths that social movements have as social movements. Um, many of you will be working in, in workplaces, trying to accomplish change in places like Harvard University. Um, and you'll have, your, if you're lucky, you'll have a social movement behind you. Um, so this is going to allow you to get, get a little handle maybe on social movements. The strategic strengths, two big ones are, one, social movements are hydra-headed, many-headed. They're 
polycephalus, some people call it. Um, I think I'll just stick with many-headed. Um, the point being that that means that they can be tremendously responsive to local conditions because they're spontaneous and they jump up here and there and everything. Terrific. Also, the way social movements work is they they are merchant, they change norms. And I'll give you an example of that later. Welcome babies. I'll give you an example of that later on. Now, the strategic weaknesses of a social movement are in a sense just the flip side of the strengths. The many-headedness means that they're kind of uncontrollable. It's not like the Communist Party where you um, have a membership and you can be kicked out of the membership mm -hmm. if you follow the wrong one. Social movements are, are many, many-headed. Um, and they are also subject to a kind of dynamic of deafness, which I will describe later. So first, though, I want to give you background. And I'm going to give it to you in three pieces. Um, the, the lead up, um, the, the actual before the states, and today. So the lead up um, is, I'm going to talk about the uh, Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. One thing we tend to forget in the United States is that we live in a world um, and uh, 1848 was a year of revolutions across the world. Um, about the year of the Communist Manifesto, Latin America, Europe, everywhere there were revolutions. Um, and so it was not surprising that in that year, it was kind of, you think, 60s, so to speak, this 1848, everybody was, had full of hope, thought they could get, bring about change. Um, then we have to have a little, look a little bit at, at an age and class analysis and a space spatial analysis um, because the original equal rights for women sort of started among kind of more upper middle class women in the Northeast um, and uh, um, they had an equal rights vision, you know, there should be equal rights for women. The ERA would, uh, the votes for women would not have happened if it hadn't been for the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Mm -hmm. Emma Willard, um, <coughs> who said to, you know, got their, that group on board, uh, they were for prohibition. And sometimes prohibition has a sort of uh, a, a, bad, a bad rap, um, you know, kind of a lot stupid prohibition. Um, but actually, you should think of it as a, a, a movement against violence against women. Um, guys would go to bar, get drunk, and come home and beat up their kids and their wife. That was a very, very standard, sort of almost accepted behavior. And um, one of the ways that women thought we can stop this is to have prohibition. Um, Emma Willits, she understood the way social movements work. And she said, look, we're not going to spend a lot of time bickering about how we're going to do this. We have a do-everything strategy. Mm -hmm. The Colorado people can do it their way. The Massachusetts people can do it their way. Um, and that's, it was because of her. And, and with Ms. Christian Temperance Union, moving from equal rights to equal votes for, for women to the idea that, you know, God actually wants you to get involved in politics. Mm -hmm. Because you, as a good Christian woman, can do something in politics. You can make uh, the world better. So you should get involved. And you should, in, in particular, get votes for women. Um, so in 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified. And in 1923, right after they got the vote, the women proposed the Equal Rights Amendment. And it was, 
it failed in Congress, and then, but it was brought up in, co in Congress year after, it literally every year after. So it was part of that process. Now I'm going to just back up a tiny bit. I went on the web to sort of see what, you know, see what you could see. Mm -hmm. uh, spent, you know, a few minutes on it. And I came across the web page of the a national park in Seneca Falls, from the Seneca, uh, that's where um, the Seneca uh, Falls movement was. Um, and they had this really nice um, table that sh showed the relationship between the abolition movement, the women's rights movement, and the temperance movement. And I'm just going to walk you through that a little bit. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton meets Lucretia Mott at the anti-slavery convention. Um, and that's how they met with two abolition. Um, then they held the Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. That's the, that's the part that came out with it, is a, the demand for women's uh, vote for women. And it almost didn't pass. People were terribly afraid that that was too radical. Mm. But they decided to do it anyway. You can see that Frederick Douglass was at that convention. Um, and very shortly after, Sojourner Truth um, made her famous Ain't I a Woman speech. Um, uh, then Anthony um, Stem and Andy founded the New York State Women's Temperance Society. So you can see that abolition and women's rights and temperance had a lot of the same actors were were um, mixed up together. Um, then the terrible moment in 1869 when the women's rights movement split because um, some women said, you know, we've got to be pressing for votes for women first. And other women saying, no, we should support uh, votes for blacks first. Lucy Stone and, and Frederick Douglass supported suffrage for blacks. Um, I kept my name after I got married. I'm um, almost 80 years old, so you know, that's how antediluvian I am. Um, and when I got married, one of my dad's friends said, oh, a Lucy Stoner, eh? <laughs> because Lucy Stone kept her uh, birth name after she got married. And the people who did that were in that older generation were called Lucy Stoners. <laughs> so when I get my name, my, my dad's name. Oh, Lucy Stoner. <laughs> um, so there's Lucy Stoner, and she was she got together with Douglas to split off um, because of. Then um, Frances Willard, whom I spoke to before, become president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, advocates suffrage, and the next step is the 19th Amendment is ratified and the Equal Rights Amendment is brought before Congress right away. So it's part and parcel of this larger history. So that's the first history. We get the Equal Rights Amendment brought before the Congress for the first time in 1923. Then we have the 60s, um, and the National Organization for Women is formed on the as with the NAACP as its model. <coughs> um, and at the same time, young middle-class white women are creating a radical women's movement on the west and east coasts. Um, so for example, in 1971, a group of us, I was one of those, occupied 88 Memorial Drive, which no longer exists, it's been raised, but there's a, a movie uh, about it. And, in, and <coughs> the, the National Organization for Women was promoting the ERA, and a lot of uh, us, the uh, younger radical women, were opposed to the ERA because we thought it's distracting from the real, in, the important issues. So the feminists and a group called The Feminists, capital F in, in DC, <laughs> who testified in Congress against the ERA. Um, uh, 
uh, the proponents of the ERA consulted with Birch Bayh, who was very sympathetic, who was the head of chair of the Judiciary Committee, and he said, you know, it would be, you'll be much easier if you use the language of the 14th Amendment um, in, uh, instead of the language that you've had since 1923. And they said, no way, Jose, that would weaken the amendment. If they'd taken that advice, there would be an ERA in the Constitution today. And they said no. Um, so nevertheless, in 1972, the Equal Rights Amendment passes both houses and goes before the states. Um, in the course of this, if you look at surveys, you'll find that African-American women were more likely to support the ERA than white women. That was really in general. African-American women were more feminist. Um, so there had been a seven-year deadline, and then when the seven-year deadline came to an end, the Congress extended the deadline for three more years, but even then, there were three states that had not ratified. So that was that. Everybody said, okay, it was a nice, it was a nice run for the money. Meanwhile, um, the National Organization for Women had, had um, very, very, very much increased its membership. Uh, many women were calling themselves feminists who had never thought about the issues before. The, the whole issue of feminism was in the Midwest as well as the coasts. So that was the second period. Yeah. Something we're, we're, I, I'm going to have to keep this fairly short. How, oh, what happened to that clock that I put up here? It's noon now, and we yeah. have you get the until the one for the whole. Yeah, but when should I stop talking? 12.30, half an hour. Yeah. Um, okay, so. This is a, a really fun little story. <laughs> I'll tell some of it anyway. A guy, a kid, uh, a, a freshman or sophomore at the University of Texas, Austin, was writing paper on the ERA, and he discovered that there was a Madison Amendment, um, the 27th Amendment, which had been introduced along with the other bills, the other amendments, which would be the bill, became the, some of them became the Bill of Rights. And this was an amendment to that you couldn't, if Congress raised its salaries, um, it wouldn't take effect until after the next election. In other words, the, the people could be angry at the members of Congress for raising their salaries and vote them out. So, and that had gotten this number of votes and then it languished and so forth. And he said, you know, this is still viable. So he, he wrote a paper on it and he got a C. <laughs> and he um, was kind of uh, irritated at that. And he went out, he actually appealed it, it was just his TA who gave him the grade. And he appealed it to the, to the head of the course, and she said, no, no, this is stands. And so he said, so he went out, and he got a bunch more states to ratify. And darn, if he didn't get enough states to ratify the darn thing, and it became the 27th Amendment. <laughs> and so that was very interesting and fun. And then these women at, in, at um, uh, William and Mary, in their little Women and Mary Journal of Women and the Law, volume three, in other words, this is the women's movement. The women's movement is here at the Kennedy School, it's everywhere. And it's at William and Mary. Mm -hmm. And at William and Mary, the women had gotten the university to support a, a journal of women and the law. And they went out and studied this, and they wrote an article, Equal Amendment, why the ERA remains legally viable and properly before the states. Because they said, this deadline of 10 years is just an act of Congress. If 
Congress puts in the deadline, Congress can take away the deadline, and then the states can ratify it. So out of this women's law group comes this really brilliant opening, and da 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 everyone says, my gosh, maybe that's true. Um, they organize a little bit. I don't imagine any of you have organized for the DRA. Have you? Has anybody organized for the DRA? That's the best thing one person has. Two. Well, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> um, but by and large, um, you'd have to be in one of these states to have even practically heard of this. So Nevada ratifies the ERA in 2017. Illinois ratifies the ERA in 2018. And just this past January, the Virginia Senate ratified the ERA by a fairly good um, margin, 26 to 14. And Hala Ayala, um, who's a very first-term feminist representative, part of this new wave of women that's in the states and in the, and the House in Washington, she moved to change the rules so that to get this ERA out of committee so to a floor vote. And the vote to get it out of committee was 50-50. It didn't get out of committee. It had to have been 49-51 to get it out of committee. So one vote changed, and it would have gotten out of committee. If it had gotten out of committee, the chances, the reason they wanted to keep it in committee was they thought that it would win in the, in the House. So we're one vote away in Virginia uh, from having an ERA go back to Congress, and then there will be a fight about well, and you know, is it really true that you can extend the deadline? And what about but the I states think, that rescinded? Right, and then, but the thing about the Madison Amendment was it showed that you couldn't, the states that had said yes couldn't rescind. Right. And all of that was done without anybody thinking it would set a precedent. In other words, it's just a silly, not a silly little, but just this relatively minor amendment about whether people who had voted for a pay raise, blah, 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 blah. And nobody was thinking about the consequences. So it looks to me as if we might well have an ERA in the Constitution. So that's the, that's where we stand now. So um, I'm sure you're going to want to ask a number of questions about the ERA per se in, in question period. But I'm going to go on now to talk a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of social movements. And I've mentioned before this issue of the strength of the social movement being its many-headedness. I don't think I need to give any examples of that because it's such an easy point. I think you guys can get that without further ado. <laughs> what I do want to talk about a little bit is how social movements work <coughs> very slowly. This is something, and, um, and almost all courses in social movements talk about how, about what the activists do. And that's reasonable, because the kinds of people who take courses in women's studies or courses here at the Kennedy School, they want to know what what should I, what can I do? So it's, it's about what activists can do. But when you think about the difference between a social movement and an interest group, a social movement is one in which, um, I just had got distracted by the baby. <laughs> um, at any rate, sorry. A social movement is one in which lots and lots of people who are not activists get on board. And I'll tell you, this is where my example of male chauvinist comes along. Um, so what I'm interested in is not just the organized activists about whom I wrote in, in my book, Why We Lost the ERA. Here's my book. 
um, and the kind of people that you'll probably be, organized activists, but everyday activists. People might not even vote in elections. Um, but in their own lives, they're taking steps that further the movement. They're agents of change, not just recipients of change. So often, privileged groups like the ones in this room will think about their job as activists. Of, you know, I'm going to go out and get those other people to think the way I think. That's my job as an activist. I've got an analysis, and I'm going to see if I can bring some other people along. Here, we're going to look at people being agents of change. And I, I've done quite a bit of interviews and stuff on this, but I'm going to give you this one little example. Um, but before I do, just give you the theoretical background. Complex and uh, emergence, uh, complex adaptive systems uh, create these things called emergent phenomena. And they're like hurricanes. There's something very, very big, or a school of fish. There's something mm -hmm. very, very big that don't come from a conductor at the front of the orchestra waving. But rather, how does a school of fish move? Each fish takes little micro messages from all the other fish. And those all those little micro messages turn into um, something very, very big. Um, so individuals acting on local information produce without any central coordination <coughs> outcomes that are far beyond just the additive effects. In other words, a school of fish is different from just lots of little fish. So here is um, an example of a focus group that I ran in 1992. And Joyce, here's Joyce. Um, she identifies as a feminist. And she's telling the group about going to a big family dinner. And she says, well, all of a sudden the men shifted. Uh, and all of a sudden, the, all the women shift into the kitchen. And the women come out with their plates, handing out the plates. And my husband says, you want to fix my plate? She says, I didn't fix your plate at home. Why would I do it here? Well, what I what did was I ended up like liberating the other women in the family. And then all of a sudden, they stopped serving them all of a sudden. So she just enters into this everyday interaction in which forever and ever, time immemorial, the women have gone and gotten the plates for the men. And she says, don't do it anymore. And she would have had zero effect if there hadn't been a social movement around her. If she'd just been some cranky old, oh my god, there's Joyce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because people have been hearing stuff on television and this and that, and it was in the air, the rest of the women didn't stop doing taking the place too. So um, here's Sharon. Um, she was one of the second. She was the second interview I did when I was uh, doing uh, women in Chicago, low-income women in Chicago. Um, and she's talking to me. We were having a beer in her living room, and she's talking to me about a guy that she is. Uh, in a group with, and she says, this one man is a chauvinist pig. He is a chauvinist. And I said, well, what does he do? He's a dipshit, is all. <laughs> and, and she's continuing, and she says, and when I said he was a chauvinist pig, my girlfriend said, you know what, you're right. I said, he really thinks he's the only rooster in the hen house. That's what he's thinking, and he thinks when he clucks, everybody's supposed to cringe. Hmm. Well, I had thought this word, man, chauvinist was a word um, you know, that people on the East Coast 
through the kind of circles I traveled with. Let me see if what my next slide is. Yeah. Um, in the circles I traveled with, used. And I was really interested that this woman was using this word um, and glorying in it, kind of getting off on, you know, calling the show this pig. And, um, and so I, I started asking this question in my interviews. Have you ever called anybody a chauvinist uh, or shown this pig? And I got the greatest answers. I mean, I just got one particular uh, white, um, young white poor woman on welfare. I had just been, I don't know how many of you have done interviews, but sometimes you get these notes and then you, you know, and you kind of can't break through. And you're asking questions and you get these monosyllabic answers, you know, yes, no, yes, no. You're not contacting. And I said, well, have you ever called anybody a, a chauvinist? And yes, I have. <laughs> and out comes the story. And, and from then on, you know, the interview is terrific. So, so I asked, I, I, I was really curious about this. So I, I, we, we had a little survey at the Northwestern. And I put this question on the survey. Have you ever referred to someone as a male chauvinist, either while speaking directly to that person or describing them to someone else? Um, so 63% of the women in the Chicago area said yes. And 53% of the women who did not describe themselves as feminists, 56% of the women who called themselves conservative, 55% of the women who had only a high school education, 51% of African American women, 60% of women who are not registered to vote. So this was a cross-class, cross-race, cross-everything part of a social movement. Somehow or other people have picked it up from the television or whatever, and we're running with it. So um, it's particularly interesting because this phrase was not coined like uh, the right to choice or some other things that were actively coined by the, you know, the feminists, professional feminists on the East and West Coast. So here's, a, here's a phrase that we can sell to other people. This had actually um, the, it's a long, wonderful story, which I won't tell you, but about how the concept of white chauvinist came up in the in the party, and then after that, I think that had been going. That came up in 1928, and that had, had had a big effect in the Communist Party USA. And then around 1934, the women of the Communist Party started saying, "Huh, white chauvinist. You know what? Some people are male chauvinists, and they, the, the women in the party started using it. So." Back in the 60s, in the radical women's movement, there were people who were the kids of those CP uh, parents. They, they used to be called red diaper babies. And they, they used the phrase male chauvinist, and they entered the women's movement. And then by accident, pig got attached. <laughs> and when pig got attached, it, it, it took off. Male chauvinist pig. Whoa, that really rolls off this tongue. <laughs> and not only that, it, um, Wait a minute. I'm, I'm gonna. Well, so so chauvinist is a word, is a relatively new word. So one of the ways you can track this most times you can't track things in in uh, language too well. But you can track chauvinist because it's a made up word. There was a guy named Nicolas Chauvin who was a, a, a nationalist idiot, and somebody made a couple of plays about him, and he became a kind of laughing stock. And so this is the usage of the word chauvinist. This blue line. Starting around 1865, and that's from Monsieur Chauvin. And people would say chauvinist, meaning sort of stupid nationalist, kind of crazy, <laughs> over the top, 
dumb nationalist. He was a figure of fun. And the word chauvinist grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And then it starts to branch out a little and you start to talk about literary chauvinism and this other kind of chauvinism. And that's this sort of darker line. This is the total of chauvinism. Um, and then here in 1934 is male chauvinism, the, the, just a teeny mention by some of the CP women, well, a few CP women, and the CP guys. I don't want to come back teeny, teeny, bit, teeny bit. Okay, here's the women's movement, right? Here's the women's movement. Here's the beginning of the use of it. That's 1968. And then, whoa, next year, <laughs> <laughs> next year, <laughs> next year, <laughs> next year. At this point, even Nixon is gone. <laughs> Calling John Mitchell a, a male chauvinist, and then and then because that's a what that's a trajectory of a, what's called a Vogue word. This is male chauvinist pig. Um, I'm going to just show you. I'm going to show you a Vogue word. Here's groovy. Oh my God. Same the same trajectory. So you know, it, it's a, it's a cool word. You use yeah. it for a while. You know, and then it so that's what male chauvinist was for for a while. But as it did that, as it became a, a vogue word, it brought us a, a feminist message. Because the message between male chauvinists means you're not just being rude, you're not being just stupid. There's a structure behind it. It's, it's not just a personal characteristic. It's a characteristic in what you're buying into and you're promoting if you're a male chauvinist. A whole structure. Um, so, th so it's got this little analysis behind it. Um, and so I thought, well, You've heard of um, uh, um, a random variation and selection and evolution, you know, this all this sort of mutation that just happens, and then some of the things that survive get picked up. Well, I thought, it's, this is enclave variation. The, the women's movement in these enclaves invented lots of words and protected spaces and intense interaction, hothouses for innovation. In a sense, like here at the Kennedy School, this is a hothouse for innovation. And then everyday activists who are more vulnerable select things that the hothouses, you can think of the hothouses of, you know, letting out a whole lot of fireworks. And then some of those are picked up. And the, these everyday activists, what I'm calling everyday activists, ordinary women, are more vulnerable. So here's a Missouri secretary. One of the reasons male chauvinist pig worked was because you could do it as a joke, which is something if you're vulnerable, yeah. is a much better way. So here's a Missouri secretary. She's a Republican. And she said, when someone in her office put down women, I just chucklingly would tell him that he was a male chauvinist pig. Chucklingly. <laughs> you know, she invented that word, chucklingly, but it's a great <laughs> word. Chucklingly. I just would chucklingly tell him he was a male chauvinist pig. Mm -hmm. So conservative woman, I always say it with a smile. Why? I ask why. Because I could get away with it. Otherwise, they take it as an insult. <laughs> she's a conservative woman in a phone interview. She said, well, the husbands walk away from dinner at the table, leaving women with everything to do. The women sometimes get together and kind of tease them about being chauvinists. So it's something you could tease somebody about. Sexist. That's not a teasing word. That's just, that's just um, blame. So here's sexist. You see, it starts at the same time. It's not a vocal word. It keeps going. But problem with sexist is you can't use it that way. Um, so, for example, I showed you those uh, 63% of the women in the Chicago area had used the word male chauvinist, 35% had used sexist. Uh, and only 21% of the high school educated women, 27% of the 
African-American women. And in my open-ended interviews, um, I didn't find that word at all. So, hmm. so it's, it wasn't something that you could just use in conversation. It's really a, so, um, okay, so that's, that's, that's the strength of the social movement. And it's nothing that any of you can do much about. Sorry about that. Um, it's, it's something that just happens. You can, it, it goes into the air, you can use it, but you can't necessarily create it. Any more than you can create, use the word grooming. Um, so weaknesses are the uncontrollability. Um, and I'll give you an example from the ERA. In 1982, I was working for the ERA. As part of my book, I was also being an activist. And we had gotten some nuns to testify to the Illinois legislature that the ERA would not cause, you know, would not support abortion, that there was not, no relationship between the ERA and abortion. Okay. Meanwhile, in Hawaii, the feminist lawyers, they have a state ERA, so the feminist lawyers are bringing suits in their state courts arguing that their ERA requires funding abortions as an equal right. No, nothing equal, but they fail, of course, in their suit. The, the ERA, their ERA did not require abortions, but they were claiming it did. Well, we were sending nuns up to say that it didn't. So, no way. I mean, if you're an activist, you just have to resign yourself to this. You have to figure out that this is going to happen. And don't get mad at the other people. Mm -hmm. They're just doing their job in their state. Um, you just have to live with it. So for example, take the Kennedy School just you know, a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm part of the faculty group that is in favor of asking the university to divest uh, from fossil fuels. And so we have made the argument because we know that the, the big argument, they have two major real fears. One is that their donors are going to be upset. And two is that um, it's a slippery slope. If they, if they divest from fossil fuels, then um, boycott um, and sanctions, uh, and um, uh, a divestment san sanctions will be coming, coming next uh, for, in Palestine and Israel, and so will all sorts of other things. So we, me in particular, I mean, have been writing these arguments about how, in fact, if you were to see the just a couple days ago, we had a press conference. If you see me testifying at the press conference, I said, you know, it's true universities don't divest from many things, and that's a good idea. Harvard is only divested from tobacco, from Darfur, from South Africa. It's something that should be done very, very rarely. But the fate of the planet is something so incredibly important that we should, on this one issue, so making this huge big thing about how this is different. So meanwhile, the student fossil fuel group joins with the private prison divestment group to try to shut down a forum uh, uh, where uh, President Macau was talking at the, at, uh, at the Kennedy School. So in other words, two divestment people together. I can see why they got together. Um, I'm not even going to go into the reasons why they got together. But the point is, I was making argument A, and they were making argument not A. Completely, you know, pulling the grab. That's the social movement for you. Now, I could get really, really angry at the student group, or I could say, 
that's a social movement for you. How do I um, like go forward from here? You know, um, how about going to you know, getting a small group of faculty and going to the president and making the argument that the, that you can do one without the other. Um, this is whichever you, whatever you believe about the actual thing. The point is that this kind of thing can turn parts of a movement against mm -hmm. one another to the point where they tear each other apart mm -hmm. rather than tearing apart their enemy. Mm -hmm. So you just have to kind of live with it. What's another strategic weakness? Um, what I call the dynamic of deafness. And that's because people who invest in social movements don't do so in order to get good stuff for themselves. It's not like, um, I got a park job, so I will go um, try to get votes for the people in, in my city government. Or there's no select, what's called, there are no selective incentives. No, what economists would call a selective incentive. Something that I can give to you that will make it worthwhile you're giving up your time or your money to invest in this social movement. You do it because you believe in it. Well, when, see, when you believe in it, oh, sorry, when you believe in it, you tend not to listen too hard to the people who don't believe in it. Um, because you've got a lot invested in believing it. If you've given up, particularly, you know, I was active, and I've been active in lots of things in my life, but I've always had a day job, so to speak. I've always had another source of identity. I've always had another source of things I had to do with my time. I had to teach my courses. I wanted to teach my courses. I cared about democratic theory. I cared about the Kennedy School. I also cared about mm -hmm. something else. So I didn't give my whole life, but you know, for the ERA movement, and you'll find in other movements, there are people who've given up their whole lives for, to work as an activist in these things. And when you've given up your whole life to work as an activist, you often care so strongly that if somebody says something against where you're coming from, you're not so likely to listen to what And in fact, um, so here's, here's an example um, that uh, in the whole Illinois battle, the National Organization for Women, was assuming that the ERA would send the military, would require the military to draft women and send them into combat um, on an equal basis as men. That was an assumption. Their lawyers told them that that was the case. Who were their lawyers? Were their lawyers conservative lawyers? No, their lawyers were progressive lawyers. Their lawyers were feminist lawyers. There, it turns out there was something called um, military deference to the military, um, that, that, quote, unquote, that if you look back at, soldiers don't have the same rights to free speech as civilians do. Traditionally, the courts have interpreted the rights in the, in the Bill of Rights to mean that if Congress and the executive and the military say they want, they think X is right, is important for military security, that will not necessarily trump the rights, but it'll give you a lot of leeway to interpret the rights in a way that, that in which national security is a very, very high priority. <coughs> and a number of uh, lawyers who are pro-ERA, but not feminist, 
progressive lawyers, said, well, duh. You know, the Supreme Court would totally treat the ERA the way it treats um, freedom of speech or some of the other rights. There, there would be the military exception. Um, and I think that they were right. I think that as a predictive matter, they were completely right. But their lawyers, the, our lawyers, wouldn't hear you know, anything of it. Because our lawyers, of course, were against the military exception. They were against deference to the military. Mm. So if you said deference to the military, they'd shake all over and turn green. Um, it happens to have been the way the court would have interpreted it. They didn't want the court to interpret it that way. So most people in the movement didn't even know about this. The only reason I knew about it was because I had been given one of the reasons this book got, I wrote the book is because when I was working for the thing, I was given the job of what would this change? Some legislator asked a little group, ERA group in Chicago to tell them what would it change. And since I was an academic, they said, what would it change? I thought there were women that, <clears throat> that wanted the military exception simply because at the, t at the time that the military exception was there, um, women were in the military, but they weren't fighting in combat. They were doing more administrative and analyst type positions. So the idea was that if they had a draft in the future, we could draft women for those types of positions, but not combat because that was on the standard. So I thought they were actually pushing to have the military exception. And just the women. Women in the military wanted, they didn't particularly want women to be drafted on the same basis as men, but, but they were divided on various other things. And there was no, at that time, women, there was no sort of single voice from women in the military. So women in the military didn't act, women themselves in the military didn't actually take much of a stand on this. You know, in other words, there wasn't, there are now organizations for women in the military, dark work, Anyway, there, there are organizations for women in the military. Um, but at that time, um, they were just beginning and they didn't take a stand on this. Okay. So it was really one, one set of lawyers against the other. Um, so that's just an example of, of how the kinds of commitments that you make make you not pay attention to some arguments very often. And as future activists or as people who will be engaging with activists, You've got just, again, you've just got to realize that these are the facts of, of life. One of the beauties of, an, of uh, something like uh, universities is that this is a place in which those kinds of issues can be raised and people think about them in, in seminars such as this one um, in, in less fraught circumstances than the real world outside. So coming to an end, um, oh, oh, but just in regard to this, at the time that we were arguing that the ERI would send would send military, the uh, women into the military be drafted and sent into combat on the same basis as men, seventy-two percent of the American public opposed that position. So, um, so that's um, that's the that's the problem. Um, so uh, to conclude, uh, these ideal-based motivations aren't as malleable as material-based motivations. Um, and you have to understand that activists have a lot to lose if they compromise. Um, and that makes, um, makes activists, some of you, how many people here are taking a negotiation course? Oh, right, a lot of people here. So you know that part of a good negotiation is active questioning and active listening.
trying to find out what are the interests behind someone's positions. They're coming in with this position, but find out what they need. Maybe you can figure out a way of giving them some stuff that they need that's less costly to you than what they're demanding. That's you know, a really brilliant negotiator can, can find that out. And the way you find that out is by asking somebody, what, what do you need? You know, and listening really hard and then thinking, hmm, that seems pretty costly too. Tell me more about what you need. Um, and, you know, and, and moving along that way, that's not exactly the way an activist is going to be acting. So we need lots and lots of people in the movement. Um, and that's more or less the end of what I have to say. Um, that there was background and there are the strategic strengths and there are the strategic weaknesses and I'll open it up for questions. Questions? And I'll start from the reading in the class. In your history of the ERA, you talk about how the conservative opponents, Phil Schlafly and others, actually didn't suffer from some of the same uncontrollability and what and that, that that conservative movement was more controlled, more hierarchical. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yes. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly organized her group like uh, on Army. Um, she called the, the, the women her, her lieutenants, and it was hierarchically organized. It was not grassrootsy, you know, jumping up. It was grassroots in the sense that she organized homemakers who were particularly um, fundamentalist church. She got a lot of fundamentalist churches involved, and the, their pastors were bringing their, the, their female parishioners to the to the state legislature. Um, the, and that has its obvious strengths, um, but it also has certain weaknesses. So for example, when Phyllis Schlafly went to Maine, um, uh, she had developed a whole lot of her, a style and a whole lot of rhetoric and whatnot about, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to have unisex bathrooms and so forth. That, worked really well in Illinois. And then when she went to Maine, it didn't work so well. For example, she was very, very strong um, against uh, you know, gay relationships and, you know, the word homosexual was on her lips every five minutes. Um, and that didn't go over terribly well in Maine where they were not particularly homophobic. In fact, they were somewhat offended by this explicit homophobia you know, homophobia, and um, so she, because she didn't, because it wasn't ground up, she didn't have people who said, knew what it was like in Maine and, and what to say in Maine to draw. She came in with her army, but her army was her army, mm -hmm. and that, and that, so that had the corresponding weakness. Other questions? Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I was wondering, in your experience, how do you try to reconciliate the necessary negotiation you have to make, like you want to have this, uh, the amendment passed, and at the same time, like other feminist causes, well, like for example, abortion, like how, as an activist feminist, do you work on both, um, on, on both sides? Well, I think the answer is to recognize that you, as a one person, can't do it all. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be working with people, and the people you're working with are going to be different from you. So the 
key in negotiation is the key is that you try to find ways in which you honor someone's commitments, but you don't necessarily, you, you try to get them to work with you in processes that are maybe much weaker than the processes they would like because of their commitments. Um, and that depends often on personal relationships. It also depends on not getting mad at them, as I say. Um, you know, um, and it and it depends on having a, a, some good negotiating abilities because negotiation has to go on within the movement, within the organization, as well as outside the organization, between the organization and the people you're trying to uh, trying to change um, in the in the in the real world. So I would say draw on your negotiation abilities. Don't get mad. Um, and realize that you're going to have to be assembling a coalition in which the, everybody in that coalition is going to have a different collection of motivations, a different collection of ideals. Um, and this is really difficult because the whole thing is being driven by the ideals. So what you want is someone who is, you know, believes everything exactly the way I do, um, and that's not going to happen. And that's, that's kind of the key issue. You, you, you have to have lots of people um, and you have to negotiate. Now let's take abortion for example. The um, abortion movement in Italy got um, way, way back, oh you know, I don't know when it was, maybe 75 or something, um, got uh, abortion rights in Italy. Um, how did they do this? The word rights, woman's right to her body, etc., etc., never used. It was a tragedy. They didn't get. They didn't claim that there was no birth there, no child there, no, no. You know, they said this is a tragedy. No matter how you cut it, it's a tragedy if the woman has to have an abortion. It's a tragedy if the child is born into a family that can't give it um, enough love and sustenance. And you're facing the tragedy, you have to do the best thing you can do. And so what they did was they made abortion legal, but they had, and they had a counseling period. But they also had abortion being given in every single little village clinic. So the counseling period, which is used in the United States, to basically, as, as a way of keeping people from having abortions, because you, you insist on counseling, they have to have gone miles and miles and miles and miles to a clinic which is nowhere near where they live. Then there's a counseling period, so they have to go back home, and then they have to come again, et cetera. And it's being used quite cynically as a, as a way of just keeping people from having abortions. Here, you have the counseling period, but you also have lots and lots of clinics who can give abortions. So that's, that's a way, people say you can't, you can't compromise on, um, on ideals. You can only compromise on, you know, if you want 100 and I want zero, we'll, we'll compromise on 50, but you can't compromise on ideals. Well, you can't compromise on ideals, no, but you can sometimes negotiate ideals a bit in the sense, what's the most important thing to the right to life people. The most important thing for them is the recognition that this is a life. What's the most important thing for the pro-abortion people? It's that this child not have to be born into a world that cannot sustain the child appropriately. So how can we put these two together? Um, you know, and, and also the, the woman's life will be often ruined in the course of um, having a pregnancy that she um, can't sustain, or, or uh, that, she, that she can't sustain in her given life. So there's a way that, that, that if you try to understand what are the needs 
and it's sort of, well, this is just as you say, negotiation 101. If you try to understand the needs and the interests behind the position, sometimes you can find a way that's, that's appropriate to each person's set of ideals. It's not always possible, but if you're not looking for it, you can't find it. So I don't know if we have their hand up first. Yeah, who? Sarah, did you go uh, watching? No, I didn't see. Where are we going? Oh, okay. Yes, that's more. If we're, if we're say, one vote away in the Virginia legislature, thinking about social movements and you know social media, for instance, what kind of messaging would you want to craft or use today, as opposed to maybe you know, back in the 60s or whatever, to, to push those votes through? I would see if I could find somebody in Virginia. <laughs> I would, you know, look through your friendship list and see if you know somebody in Virginia. If you don't know somebody in Virginia, see if you know somebody who knows somebody in Virginia. Because you haven't a clue what won't make sense in Virginia. And I think if you know, I had time to list a bunch of other lessons. One of the lessons are, is when it's a state-based matter, as amendments are, go to the states. That was a big mistake that we made the first time around, because we thought, oh, we could have a movement based in Washington and New York and San Francisco and so forth that will change what they believe in Southern Illinois. Huh. And the answer <coughs> is, no, you can't. Um, it's very, very hard to, you know, if, if you're lucky and you're somebody here in your class at Kennedy School, you can maybe get on someone's wavelength. But now, you and I have a clue what to do there. So what we need to do is find someone who is there. Or better yet, you know, they've got, I'm sure you're, I know they're ERA groups. Okay, get in touch with them, find out how they, what they think, and say, you know, I have a few social media skills, um, I have XYZ access, how can I be of use to you? That's the way you should go about it. Um, so you mentioned in your talk um, that uh, black women were consistently more feminist than white women. And also with the recent presidential election, we saw that more white women voted for Donald Trump than voted for Hillary Clinton. So I'm wondering why you think that um, white women um, consistently have less progressive or feminist politics than women of color, and what are some things we can do to fix that problem? Fix the problem of the white women. First, these are two different questions. Um, the question of why African-American women um, are more sympathetic is pretty simple. They are able to make analogies really easily. They have a very, very clear idea of what it's like to be oppressed by some characteristic over which you know you don't have too much control, like your race or whatever. You, you, they have a very good idea about what history means, what, the, what trying to fight an entire generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation set of oppressions mean. And so that just you could just go. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not difficult to, to make those those connections. So how do we get white women who haven't got that just visceral understanding of what it's like to be an oppressed group um, to understand? Well, it's just reading some African American literature. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, the the white women who voted for Trump tend to be people um, either who are consistently Republicans anyway which, you know, most people forget that an awful lot of people who voted for Trump were Republicans. And they didn't vote for Trump because he was Trump. They voted for him because he was a Republican. 
Um, and the polarization, I could go into a whole trip on why the polarization, but that's the two main causes, Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act and the fact that the two parties have been competitive since 1980. At any rate, these are structural reasons for polarization. Polarization means that Republicans are less likely to vote for Democrats than they used to, and Democrats are less likely to vote for Republicans than they used to. Trump was maybe not somebody people thought was terrific, but he wasn't a Democrat. That's why they voted for him. So, so you have to you have to be think about what what's going on here. It's um, it's perhaps less their whiteness, called whiteness, than their absence of blackness. If you see what I mean. In other words, the absence of connection to a history and a and a, and a literature and songs and and a whole culture that understands oppression and understands oppression by race and therefore by gender as well. So how do you bring uh, progressive values to um, a group like that? I would say, again, don't start by waving your finger in their, in their face and say, you voted for Trump, you evil person. Um, find out what they need. Sometimes what some of those people need, they're in very depressed areas. Sometimes they need some sort of economic help. You can't meet them on their racist. You, you don't. You're not going to become racist. You're not going to become homophobic. You've got your values. But there may be some things that they need that you can give them at less cost to your values. That's what you should be asking. We should. Um, so those are. The, that's the way I would approach that. Great, organizing, great organizing questions here. Um, one of the things that's happened recently, of course, is the Me Too movement, and um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know the precise definitions of social movement and what what has to what you have to do to qualify as a social movement. But I guess my question is, do you see? The Me Too movement as a social movement, do you have lessons or ideas about, um, you know, or advice about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, if you don't have a definition of social movement, you are in very good company, mainly the company of all social movement theorists. <laughs> <laughs> it is very, very controversial. And as you can imagine in academia, you know, there's this group of people who define it this way and they consider themselves the deep enemies of those who have done some <laughs> other way, and so forth and so on. Yes, it's a social movement. Um, they, and it's it's emergent in the same way that male chauvinist is emergent. You know, it wasn't as if somebody in one of the women's groups, National Organization for Women, got together in a little clique and said, I know what, let's invent this thing called Star Me Too, and let's, you know, send it out there, and we'll have that. I mean, some people did start it, but it wasn't the top social movement organizations. Um, and then when it caught on, it, it caught on um, in this emergent hurricane-like way without conductors at the top saying, now the stream is now the base, you know. Um, it, it just caught on. Um, how do you, how do we live in, in that sea and how do we use that sea? One thing, just to return to a theme that I've made sometimes, is don't get mad at people, you know. The thing about a social movement, and Me Too is just like it, um, is that some people will say outrageous things. And they may, quote unquote, discredit the movement, quote unquote. 
the social movement, maybe. <laughs> you got the great stuff from it, which is that, you know, lots and lots and lots of people, men, men are thinking about these issues, really thinking about them, far more than they were seven years ago, way, way more. And women are too. Women are wondering whether they could come up with something. There's a little site called Callisto that I wish Harvard would, would connect up with. You, you know about it, yeah. I wish Harvard has not joined up with it. But, um, for those of you who don't know about it, it's a place, yeah, do you? Um, just how do you answer people when, <clears throat> when they ask you why we need the ERA even written down and why? Because for me, I'll launch into a big discussion about intermediate versus like you know scrutiny and Nobody wants that answer. <laughs> so yeah, no, what do you yeah. actually give us a Because all of the yeah. things, yeah. gender neutral yeah. bathrooms, right. women in yeah. the military, all right. the fear. Well, why, do we, why do we want the ERA? And there's actually a very simple answer. It's too hard. Is it going to change any laws immediately? And the answer, essentially, no. Why have it then? Well, this is the answer I think you can give. When? James Madison and the other people after they just put in the Constitution, put in the Bill of Rights, the freedom of speech and so forth. They weren't thinking that those things would change laws the next day. They were saying a, a good polity, a democratic polity has some principles and some rights that we want to stand behind. And we're gonna put freedom of speech in there. Not because it's gonna change XYZ law tomorrow, because that's the kind of principle that a good democracy ought to have in its Constitution. And that's what, and, and then of course, freedom of speech had its played out. Some of the things that have been, the Supreme Court's done in the name of freedom of speech are not things that I think are good policy. But if you ask me, do I want freedom of speech in the Constitution? The answer is yes, I do. And same with the Equal Rights Amendment. Will everything that comes out be good policy? I don't think so. Do I, will some things that come out that are very good policy? I do think so. And do I want that principle in the Constitution? I do. Jenny, it's so wonderful to hear you walk us through this. It's electrifying and thinking about what it is that could be accomplished. Um, and I have just returned from France doing activist work to organize more women to run for office. And I have I've been watching what's been going on with the Yellow Vest movement, that we've had some women rise in that movement and then be really kind of aggressively um, torn down by their fellow activists when they wanted to hold formal roles within the EU. And I didn't know if you had any perspective on when we have movements that are diverse in different ways, if you're seeing over time women being able um, to overcome some of the challenges which come with people then silencing them within movements, and if you have any strategies for that that can be applied. Right. Well, anybody who's been in a movement that's not just pure women knows that this is a common dynamic, not just in the Yellow Vests in France, which I imagine is way, way worse. But even in lovely, lovely Cambridge organizations. Um, so what do you do? Again, you know, that kind of depends very, very much on the culture of the local place. Um, like for example, um, here in a classroom, I was one of 
I was a graduate student when I was one of the few women in the classroom. The classroom is a very different place from Yellow Vests. So what's appropriate there? Well, what I found was a couple things. I found that if I asked a question, well, the way I tell my students is, like pretending, you know, it's a tennis serve, no crook in the arm. Not like this, but like that. So that's, that's a little assertive, but it's not disgusting, you know. It's just, it's just a really strong question up there, you know. And then you have to do all these little strategies, like when the person's talking, you write, you write down all the possible questions that you could ask. And then you, just as you see them coming to the narrative curve at the end, you go through your questions and you pick the one that you think's the best, you start. And then as soon as the speaker stops, mm -hmm. your hand's up because there's often a little space there after mm -hmm. the speaker's going where people are kind of gathering their wits. And your hand is up. Um, that's another. Another one is in, in, a semin in a seminar you can start. And this is a desperation strategy, but it works. Um, you say, um, you say no. You begin with it and you use somebody's name. No, Sarah. I agree with you completely. Yeah. <laughs> no. No will get everybody's attention. And somebody's name. Somebody's name will get everybody's attention. So say no. And then you can say anything you want. <laughs> I do not know what you do in the yellow vests, but maybe you, you know, where you come in, you know, when you you walk to the top of the, you know, you walk to the front of the, <coughs> the podium and say, you know, before we start, yeah, or there's, you have to think through the local, what you can get away with. You don't want to be. You know, oh God, there goes Jenny again. You know? <laughs> um, nobody felt that way about me. I mean, nobody mm. even really noticed that I was doing these things. Mm -hmm. They did get, they did get, there used to be a joke at Northwestern that Jenny will always ask the first question. But nobody knew where I came from. <laughs> nobody knew yeah. that as a woman that was the only time I could get in. Mm -hmm. Later, after I got to be, you know, a more senior faculty member, I didn't need it. In fact, I don't even use it anymore. Um, but. Then I did, and people did notice, but they didn't think worse of me. In fact, they thought it was a kind of nice thing. Somebody was asking the first question. So, so you have to figure out what locally you can do. And, and the end, you have to figure it out because you will be in this position. There is no group of mixed people where women are not at a disadvantage. So think about it. And Figure out your strategy. Your strategy will be local, but it should, you should have a strategy. Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sarah, you can ask that question. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for, your, uh, for this discussion and presentation, Jenny. Um, my question uh, relates to the dynamics between the social movement domestically in the US and what was also happening internationally in the women's movement, mm. women's movements, um, it, during th during and throughout this time, and particularly uh, with CEDAW, signed by President Carter, with, with CEDAW, signed by President Carter in 1979 and still not ratified yes. within the US. So I, I just wondered if you could talk to some, uh, what some of the, those dynamics were and what, what have been some of the, the learnings between those movements? 
Oh, wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so CDOT, just very briefly, I'm just not going to speak about that. But, um, the U.S. has a standard position of thinking it's really, really great for all the rest of the world to have human rights and so forth, but just not... You know, we, we, we don't, oh, we have them already, you see, so we don't have to sign anything. Um, so we're against signing sort of anything. Um, and CEDAW is just one of the things we refuse to sign. Um, and it's, you know, for anybody who's at all interested in human rights, it's an extremely frustrating position um, that the U.S. has taken. I, I, so I won't say too much more about that. I'll say more about stuff that we can have, have more control over. Um, in the Violence Against Women movement, um, the women who were active were very frustrated that other countries weren't sort of picking up this obviously universal problem and running with it. And they would have conferences and stuff, and they'd invite some women from quote unquote the Global South, and, um, you know, da 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 da, and it would all end up with women from the Global South who were very mad at the people who invited them. And, we call it catastrophe and nothing would happen. And Laurel Weldon, um, a political scientist, wrote a terrific article in which she showed what they ended up learning. They ended up learning that you have to let the Global South run the stuff in the Global South. And if there's no <coughs> organizations and leadership there to do that, you have to fund them to do it. To create the groups that will create the people, the spokespeople, who then can come and run the conference in the global north, not just be a speaker at the global north, but actually run it from their perspective. So you have to start. You can't just sort of look out at the world and say, hmm, "Where are the people that we should invite?" You actually have to put quite a lot of energy into facilitating the growth of indigenous groups. Um, I'm using indigenous in the broadest sense, but it would also include actually indigenous peoples. But, but meaning, and this, this is again kind of the theme I've been talking about today, which is just what I said. What can we do? You know, at the air level, you can find a friend in the state who's there already there and support them. So find the people there and support them. Or and you don't have to find them either. You can. You can create the conditions by sort of throwing money out, by throwing the conditions of organization out. It will allow groups to spring up. And then you've got the basis. So once the, once the leaders of the, the North, the Global North leaders kind of got that and more or less turned over the reins to the Global South, you have the Violence Against Women movement as you see it today, which is that there's a Violence Against Women movement in pretty much every country in the world. But it required that change of perspective. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. This has been so inspiring, and we will all go inspiring everyone to go forward and be activists in social movements that are, do not exercise the dynamic of deafness. Um, it's also just a wonderful culmination of this semester's theme about trying to promote equity in the workplace and more broadly in the world. So thank you so much to Jenny Mansbridge and thank you all for coming to this semester's <laughs>